Okay, the only announcement I'm aware of is that uh, Fred Wells, who was uh, attended here fairly regularly, what are we waiting on? Mike Wells, excuse me. I, knew, I have another friend named Fred Wells. So Mike Wells, who attended here regularly up until his illness with Alzheimer's about six or seven years ago, uh, went to be with the Lord Sunday morning. He was not only, not only did he have uh, a battle with Alzheimer's, but he also had contracted the COVID virus while he was in the nursing home and so that was that was part of it. So there'll be a memorial service here for him on Wednesday next week. I think that's the 29th of July at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word this evening, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, because as we get towards the end and talk about some current events, you need to make sure you can stay in fellowship. That's just a warning, you know. We need to understand what the Word of God says and how current events stack up with the Word of God. So I hope I get there within the next two hours, okay? I have a lot of material. It's a lot of fun. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as we open just to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity to come together this evening and just to uh, see one another, to be encouraged by one another's presence, even though we are in this time when most people are staying at home, just trying to keep from congregating. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for this congregation as you have in the past. And Father, we pray for missionaries, pray for Jim Myers. Uh, I heard today that he does have some new students and may have more new students for the fall. But just like everything else in our lives, there's a question mark hanging over whether or not they'll be able to uh, actually congregate in the classroom or if they'll need to continue to um, live stream or in, in various ways. Father, just pray for them and the provision, the needs that they have. Give all of us uh, grace, patience, Remembering that um, a lot of times our patience is wearing thin uh, simply because of all of the things that are going on and the uncertainty. And may we trust you even more during this time, focusing upon you as the God who never changes, that despite all the chaos and change around us, we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we trust you for that, and we cast our burdens upon you and cast our care upon you because you care for us. Now, Father, as we study tonight and continue the study of Revelation, help us to think biblically in terms of application of principles as we go through history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, tonight we're not going to be doing exposition of Scripture. We've done a lot of that in the last previous lessons to lay the groundwork. You know, there are some ideas and some things that just have to be handled in multiple hours. There are ideas that are too big for 15 minutes or an hour or two hours. Just to remind you what I have done in the previous lessons, we studied, we are studying in Second Samuel, and we studied the two rebellions, the rebellion of Absalom and then the rebellion of Sheba. We broke them down and looked at various characteristics of rebellion and that rebellion is always first and foremost a matter of rebellion against God. That is a key principle to remember. It is a rebellion against God and a rejection of God's plan and purpose. Second thing that we see about, uh, about rebellion, it, is it always comes from arrogance. And as a result, there are so many unintended and unexpected consequences because sin breeds more sin. Sin has horrible consequences in the multiplication of, of other sin. And so when we look at re- some rebellions in history, there are horrible, horrible consequences uh, because of arrogance. Arrogance is going to make it worse. Uh, third thing that I think we need to remember is there's no perfect government, there's no perfect country, there's no perfect society. We have to recognize that because of a total depravity, there's always something less than perfection. But that doesn't mean that a country, a nation, a law code can't be above and beyond uh, everything else, that it can't aspire to greatness. I think there was a quote by Vince Lombardi that said we we can't achieve perfection, but if we aim for perfection, perhaps we will achieve excellence. And I think that embodies what took place in the founding of this country. Uh, They were not perfect. They did not make a perfect constitution. They made provision for changing the constitution to correct ills in the country that they knew needed to be corrected and and on on through the last two centuries. But that's, there's a difference between understanding uh, what you expect of a government when you uh, understand that uh, there's going to be corruption, there's going to be failures, there are going to be problems because people are sinners and they'll never live up to our complete expectations. So therefore, we can deal with them in grace, have forgiveness, and move on. And I think that's very important to under, understand. Last time we went through what the Bible teaches about authority. And we focused on Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, that the Bible states that government is established by God. That comes out of Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, in the covenant with Noah. I think it's important to recognize, I haven't brought this out before, but the divine institution of government is the fourth divine institution that comes after the flood. The first divine institution is human responsibility. Subsequent, subsequent divine institutions do not override earlier divine institutions. Therefore, uh, human government is designed to protect the institution of individual responsibility, and especially responsibility toward God, that it is designed to protect marriage and to protect family. When governments fail to protect the divine institutions, then it sets the stage for a nation to implode. 
and we're going to see some examples of that as I talk through this tonight. But this was these principles that I have outlined in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 3 were clearly understood by the Protestant reformers as they faced problems with uh, government interference with the Reformation. And I began to talk about this last time. I want to go back and spend a little more time looking at this tonight. But we're going to explore this topic of overturning authority, authorized or unauthorized, and look at how these principles of Scripture were applied historically in Western civilization that's so important to understand some of these things because we can't get a proper perspective on some of the things that are going on today unless we understand this as a background. And there's so much that is not taught. There's so much that is has never been learned. There's so much that is being distorted under historical revisionism today that we really have to take some time to look at historical facts. History cannot be changed. History cannot be modified. Historical reality and historical facts are set. The battle that occurs is on how you go back and interpret those things. And to do that, you really do have to understand the people, the beliefs that were taking place at the time. You have to read their writings, and you have to understand... Uh, what they were attempting to do within the framework of where they were at that time of uh, Western civilization's development. So the first thing I want to do is give you a little outline of what I hope to accomplish tonight. First of all, I want to go back and review the Magdeburg Confession, where I ended last time. I want to review that and bring out some things that I did not bring out last time because it was at the end and I was... Uh, so we, I was in a hurry. Second thing we want to do is look at the impact of that. Uh, what the Magdeburg Confession states is what is called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And this has an impact on the English Civil War that was in the 16, uh, 1640s when Oliver Cromwell uh, led Puritans and Parliament really against the King of England, against Charles I, ended up defeating him and committing regicide by taking off his head, which you can debate all of the, some of these things, whether that was really just or unjust, but it was important in understanding the development of English common law and the thinking about, of believers in relation to law and authority and unjust war and just war. So we're going to look at the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution of 1680. Then we're going to go to the, uh, then we're going to relate this and the importance of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate to the thinking of the people in the colonies, the American uh, colonists, in relation to their view of the king and parliament at the time of the American War for Independence. Then, fourth, we will contrast the American War for Independence with the French, the Bolshevik, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and then current events. And we'll do that in approximately an hour, I hope. 
Okay, just to remind you, when we think about a biblical worldview, we think about God. How do we view God? God is a personal, infinite God. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. He is the one who is the absolute standard. He is perfect righteousness and perfect justice, and it is from understanding who he is and his character and his acts in history that we come to understand what justice really is, biblical justice, and what righteousness is, and we understand how it relates to love. Second, we understand who man is. Man is created in the image and the likeness of God. Human beings are distinctive. There's no other creature, not angels, not any, uh, not any animal, is created in the image and likeness of God. Primarily, this relates to the soul. So we are created in a position of honor. But there's a problem, and that problem is we become sinful and corrupt. Every human being is a sinner. Every human being has a sin nature. That sin nature is never minimized in our whole life. Uh, We can control it as believers only through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. The solution to sin is the redemption of Christ. It is not government. Government cannot do what only God can do. Government cannot bring about perfection. Government cannot solve the sin problem. Government, the role of government is to... Uh, protect the citizens from other citizens who have a major sin problem. It is to protect other citizens from criminality and to encourage responsibility. Uh, history is for the Christian. It's linear. We believe there is a future kingdom. Jesus will return, establish His kingdom on earth, but that kingdom will be populated by the, those believers who survive the tribulation. They will enter into that glorious kingdom, and they will have children who have sin natures. It will be a, perf- a, a somewhat perfect environment, or perfect revi- environment once removed. The curse is partially rolled back. There will be uh, some peace between animals and mankind. There won't be uh, thorns and thistles and things of that nature, but there will be sinners on the earth. And what the kingdom demonstrates is that The problem isn't with education. The problem isn't with government. The problem isn't with some sort of environmental factor. The problem with man is sin. And this is what is rejected by every other worldview other than biblical Christianity. And so at the end, there's going to be millions and millions of human beings who rebel against the absolutely perfect justice of Jesus Christ. And so the causative factor overriding causative factor in human history isn't man. It's not economics. It is not education. It is not war. It is not the environment. The causative factor in human history is the plan of God under his providence. And so when we evaluate any other worldview, we have to work our way through those those specifics. When we look at Romans chapter 13 and First Peter chapters 2 and 3, and then Acts 4 and Acts 5, where Peter and John said that we must obey God rather than man, we set up an understanding of the biblical view of authority. God is the absolute authority. We have the triune God in the upper left. He is the absolute ultimate authority. He is a direct authority over human beings so that God's word stands over all other authorities. He has delegated authority under the divine institution number four government and divine institution number five nations 
to national governments and their subsidiaries, their regional and city governments within the nation. And so I have those symbolized by a crown and by a uh, police badge because there has to be a, an enforcement arm of the law of the land. And police are going to be corrupt and politicians are going to be corrupt. Kings and queens are going to be corrupt because we're all sinners and so we cannot expect perfection. And yet there are movements that are grounded on utopic ideals that are totally divorced from reality. So we are to obey God instead of man when human authority directly contradicts divine authority. And by that I mean when God says don't do this and government authority says do it, then we obey God rather than man or if the situation is reversed. A problem that we will see when we get into talking briefly, very, very briefly about the English Civil War is there was a claim by the Stuart kings that they had a divine right to authority. They should be followed as absolute authorities. This was James I, Charles I, and later Charles II and James II after the failure of the Puritan Commonwealth. That is the one option, absolute total authority in the head of state. That is not what the Bible teaches. Option two is that God is for government, not anarchy. The idea here is that God established the institutions of government but does not approve of every government or every act of government. Therefore, there are times when God opposes a human government decision. He is in opposition to tyranny, and while he holds human government as, as, and he permits it in his will, even though it fails. The thing that we began looking at last week is what was written by the pastors of a t city in Germany in the 16th century, the 1500s, called Magdeburg. And so this is an outline and an expression of why they uh, felt it necessary to disobey the two authorities that they were under. One was the authority of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the other is the authority of the Pope. So we're going to look at just a little background here. The Protestant Reformation began in October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, he never, at this point, he is not trying to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He is not trying to overturn anything. He simply is... Uh, has come to a recognition that what the Bible teaches is that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is by faith in Christ, and that at that point we are given the righteousness of Christ and declared just before God, and that became known as the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, what the Roman Catholic uh, church was teaching was that uh, you could buy these indulgences and if you uh, had enough indulgences then it would shorten your amount of time in purgatory and uh, the little saying was that for every penny in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs and so it's a it was a great abuse of, uh, of power and authority and so these 95 theses are debating points about all of the evils and corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church at the time but the unintended consequence is that Luther is going to be brought up on charges and in uh, 1521 
he is going to be tried by Emperor Charles V for heresy. In 1521, the Emperor Charles V uh, <coughs> had, had uh, brought him to be, to be tried. Now, let's look at what happens prior to the Edict uh, of Worms. It is not the Diet of Worms. This is not something they were eating. Just have to make that clear because there are some that will see this and they Diet of Worms, what's that? Well, a diet was a formal legal assembly, a convocation for the purpose of making a significant decision. And it is located in the city of Worms. It has an umlaut over the O. So it is pronounced Worms, not Worms. Uh, Luther is uh, brought before him. And after going through all of the uh, various uh, arguments, he is called to appear before the young 21-year-old emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, who was, according to his titles, he was, by God's grace, augmentor of the realm of Germany, of Spain, the two Sicilies, Jerusalem, Hungary, Dalmatia, Croatia, king. So he is king of all of these places. Recognize that. Archduke of Austria, Duke of Burgundy. Uh, he is... Uh, the king of Spain and had just uh, two years before been elected Germany's Holy Roman uh, Emperor. And he presided over more people and more land in Europe than Charlemagne did 700 years before. So when Luther appears on uh, April the 18th, 1521, he is to give an answer to the question of whether he is willing to recant of all that he has written and recant of what he has uh, taught about justification by faith. So here you have a secular authority who is telling him that he has to quit preaching the gospel, much like we saw with Acts 4 and Acts 5. He can no longer uh, proclaim, uh, proclaim justification by faith along with other uh, doctrines that were unique to the Roman Catholic Church and not based upon the Bible. So as he is summoned by the emperor, he initially, the day before, had uh, appeared and was asked to have another night to think about just how he would answer. Uh, I think that during this time, Luther prayed deeply and profoundly that God would give him wisdom so that he could answer in a, in a manner like Daniel. It didn't work out quite that way. His initial answer was, when he was asked on the morning of the 18th, do you wish to defend all uh, your acknowledged books or to retract some? When, he, when they, they came into the room where they were holding this, they had put all of his writings out on a table, and the emperor looked at them and said, did one man write all of this? How could one man write so much? Because he, Luther was quite, quite prolific. And so he was asked if he wished to retract some of them, and Luther gave a non-answer. He looked at them and he said, well, some of the books are outlining the problems and the difficulties and the corruptions in the church. And I'm sure that everyone here would agree with all of those insights, and so I don't want to retract any of those. 
And then he pointed out that there's some others that were also somewhat uh, non-doctrinal and that no one would disagree with any of those. But he did say that when it came to the last group, he said that he would gladly retract anything that was shown to have been to be contradicted by the Bible. He said he would be glad once this was proven that he contradicted the Bible, he would be glad to be the first one to throw his books into the fire. But that answer wasn't enough. The response was that he should speak more clearly and more precisely. And it is at this point that he made one of the most significant statements in the history of Christianity, in the history of Western civilization and world history. His next statement changed history. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Notice his emphasis on conscience. That is what changes things. With this statement, the Protestant movement began. Luther's conscience was captive to the word of God. That was his absolute authority. With the development of Lutheranism and then the expansion to the other aspects of the Protestant Reformation, the French Reformation, the Swiss Reformation, the Anabaptist Reformation, eventually the English Reformation, the ultimate principle they held was that the believer was to obey the word of God before all other authorities. That reality that we stand before God on the basis of our own conscience, that we do what is right before God and we have the freedom to choose to do what is right before God is the essence, really, of the first divine institution, that we are accountable to God for everything that we believe and everything that we do, and that the, there is no civil authority that can override that. Our relationship to God is primary. That eventually becomes the foundation for the First Amendment. It is freedom of conscience that gives us the freedom to worship without government interference. So this becomes the very heart of the Protestant Reformation and the very heart of what happens over the next 500 years with the development of the concept of freedom and liberty. But there's an inherent problem in this. And that problem is, if everybody runs around and claims that I have absolute authority and my conscience says this and my conscience says that, then the end result of that will be chaos, anarchy. 
Mark Knoll, in his book, Turning Points, which looks at key events in the history of the church, says that Luther's conscience was captive to the Bible. But the court was quick to ask, what if everyone simply followed his or her own conscience? Noel observes the result is obvious. You have chaos and nothing certain. So somewhere there has to be a balance point where people are free to follow their conscience before God, but not in such a way as it infringes on the rights and the freedoms of other people. But what I wanted to point out there is not to solve that particular problem, but to recognize that it is this issue of the recognition of each individual's right to serve God the way in which his conscience dictates that is at the foundation of freedom and is at the core of our first divine institution. Now, as I pointed out last time, Charles V issues his edict, and he calls for the arrest of Luther, and he says, For this reason we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic, as he deserves to be brought personally before us or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceeding against the said Luther. Those who will help in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. And so this begins a war, basically, that develops in Germany. Remember, Germany at that time is not united. You just have duchies, you just have smaller states uh, under various uh, princes, but you don't have a unified Germany. That doesn't come to the end of the 1800s. And so this is a time when many of these princes decided that they would, um, they would follow Luther and they would not follow the Holy Roman Emperor, and so this caused a division that, uh, cr- that is at the root of what, what then develops. It develops into a war uh, with uh, these duchies, various duchies, and uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. And in 1531, we have the development of the Schmalkaldic League formed by Prince Philip of Hesse and Prince John Frederick I of Saxony. John Frederick is the one who has, uh, uh, or excuse me, Frederick III had defied the emperor, and he is the one who is protecting uh, protecting Luther, uh, Prince Frederick III of, of Saxony. And this begins people to think through this issue of sort of a hierarchy, and they began to develop this doctrine of the lesser magistrates. When a higher authority enacts an unjust law, and it is unjust because the emperor is telling a subject that he must give up the gospel, basically. He must give up the doctrine of justification by faith alone, recant of it, and not to teach that anymore. And so Luther is basically saying that um, I have to obey God rather than man, just like Peter and John. When a higher authority enacts an unjust law, then a lower authority has the right and the responsibility to interpose himself 
between the higher authority and the citizen to protect the citizen from an unjust law. This is what Frederick III of Saxony is doing. He is the prince, he's the ruler of Saxony, and he is going to violate the command of the, uh, of the emperor. So there develops in 1531 this League of States called the Schmalkaldic League uh, to defend themselves against the uh, attacks of Charles V. This is in 1531, Magdeburg joins the Schmalkaldic League. In 1546, Luther dies, and then there is, after Luther is gone, before that, Charles could not get any headway, so he didn't didn't uh, push his edict. But after Luther, or after Luther dies, then he is going to push it in view of the of the Lutherans. And so he comes up with something called the Augsburg Interim. The Augsburg Interim. And the essence of the Augsburg Interim is to demand Lutherans to, number one, restore the sacraments. Now, sacraments in Roman Catholic theology are the means you receive grace. That is contrary to what Lutherans believed and what we believe. We believe we receive grace through Christ on the cross period. It is not meted out, parceled out in increments each time we observe a sacrament. Uh, Lutherans had reduced the sacraments to two ordinances, the baptism and uh, the Lord's table. Luther still had a somewhat uh, Roman view of the Lord's table. It was an odd view. I'm not going to get into consubstantiation and all, all of those different things. But they had to return completely to all of the Roman Catholic uh, ceremonies, doctrines, and practices. So their do- doctrinal beliefs were being dictated by the Holy Roman Empire. They were required to obey the Pope and to recognize the Pope as the head of the church. And they were required to reject and recant of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is what puts this in the category of Acts 4 and 5. And so as this war goes on, there are various losses, and eventually all of the different towns and cities uh, uh, bow the knee to Charles V, except for uh, Magdeburg. The Pope had given Charles V the authority to use force against those who refused to return uh, to Rome. And so the Pope gives him this authority to uh, prepare for war and to attack those who reject him. And so this is the, this is the background. And they were defeated at um, April 24th, uh, 1547, and he imprisoned Philip of Hesse and John Frederick of Saxony. So what happens at that point, after the Augsburg Interim has been set up and everything, the only city to stand against the emperor was Magdeburg. The pastors in Magdeburg said, no, we will not recant of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the other, the other doctrines. And so they set forth in this Magdeburg confession the statement that when a higher authority or superior authority makes an unjust or immoral law or decrees, the lower the lesser authority in government has the right, even the duty in the sight of God, to interpose against that immoral law or decree, to refuse obedience to the immoral law or decree, and if need be, to openly resist 
the unjust or immoral law or decree made by the higher authority. So in essence, what has happened is that Luther, under the authority of God and the scriptures, has held to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but the Holy Roman Emperor is saying you have to give it up. So does he obey God or obey man? So he is not fighting back. He doesn't say nasty things to the emperor. He doesn't call upon his people to rise up in insurrection. He leaves the castle. He is kidnapped by Frederick III's men and taken uh, to to the Wartburg Castle, where over the next year he translates the New Testament into German, which is still the popular Bible that is used of the New Testament that is used uh, in Germany. As things develop, though, after that, when you come to Marburg, I mean Magdeburg, what happens there is that that the people, uh, the people there, are not going to bow the knee to Charles. But they don't have an insurrection. They don't fight. They don't go out and try to make problems and make trouble. Trouble is going to come to them. And as Charles V's armies approached, they took defensive action and they burned the fields uh, uh, around the city. And they continued to write, publish, produce tracts explaining their position and putting that out uh, around Germany. The siege lasted a year. During the siege and the battles that ensued, uh, over 4,000 of Charles' army were killed. 468 Magdeburgers died. So obviously, holding that defensive position was good. But they were almost starved out. There was, uh, they didn't have much food, water, all of those things that come along with the siege. But the siege ended on November the 4th, 1551, with favorable terms from the emperor. Eventually, their resistance was responsible for uniting the German states against Charles and pushing his armies out of Germany. Okay, so that's the, that's the, that is the result. In the writing of the Magdeburg Confession, they state the following. The idea of unlimited obedience to the state is an invention of the devil. We do not believe that we owe unlimited obedience to any authority because there are authorities who will tell us to do things that God said not to do and not to do things that God said to do. And so then we have a right to obey God and not man. They went on to say, when the state makes laws commanding us to do that which God forbids or makes laws forbidding us to do that which God commands, we obey God rather than the state, which is what I just said. Whether a a Christian magistrate can or ought to preserve his state and the Christian teachers and hearers in it against his own superior magistrate and drive off by force one who is using force to compel people to reject the true doctrine, true worship of God, and to accept idolatry. That's the question. And the warning they have is even good men are sometimes carnally impatient of injuries and can badly abuse opinions that have been rightly handed down to them by employing them at the wrong time or place. In other words, there are people who can uh, react to authority and the authority has made a right decision and they are accused of all sorts of unjust things. And that they said, we will gladly render obedience as much as we are able and we owe you. That except for the preservation of our religion, nothing else is sought that when this is gained, our Senate and citizens will be most obedient in all their proper duties according to your majesty's law. 
And we affirm the, from the sure word of God that when superior magistrates attempt to force papistic, papistical idolatry upon their citizens to overwhelm the true worship of God and his true worshipers, just as they have now begun to do, by unjust maneuvers with their laws, even if they pretend otherwise than pious magistrates are not only able, but even have an obligation to resist them as far as they are able, to defend the true doctrine, worship of God, life, modesty, and the property of their subjects, and preserve them against tyranny. Notice also protection of property. That's, that's important. And it, the protection of private property and private ownership of property runs through all of the thinking related uh, to, uh, to just wars. Now, that basically summarizes the essence of the, uh, of the Magdeburg Confession. Now, all of this, as I've stated, follows the pattern with John and Peter in Acts 4 and 5. The issue for the citizens and leaders in Magdeburg and for all of the others was whether they would obey God or man. The king and the pope were demanding that they would recant of the gospel of justification by faith alone. This is a clear violation of their divine, of divine institution, number one. And when we make claims, let me just put this warning in here, like the warning I just read. When we make claims of this, we have to make sure that it is something that is specifically stated in the Word of God, not some abstract theological principle. But it has to be very clear that God is saying specifically in the Bible what to do or not to do, and that the government is legislating on point of prison or pain or punishment uh, to do the opposite. So the lesser magistrates in Magdeburg followed the counsel of the pastors, and they would not lead. Now, this is a doctrine that is basically grounded in what was known as just war theory. I'm not going to go through it. I put a couple of things up last week. Uh, from Thomas Aquinas, but this goes back to the 5th century B.C. in the development of the thinking of the church. Where are the boundaries on uh, authority? Where should a Christian participate in war or not? All of these different questions were coming up, and it was uh, Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, that first articulates a just war theory that there are occasions just as a person, an individual, has the right to defend himself, so it is necessary for a city or a nation to defend itself against enemies. And that becomes the essence of just war theory. So this gets developed even more under Aquinas, who is the uh, chief, even today, considered the chief theologian of the Roman Catholic Church, and he articulates the same thing. I'm not going to take the time to go through uh, their arguments and show you those things because we have other things that we need to spend our time on. on. Uh, so we recognize that there are just wars and there are unjust wars. Now pay careful attention to what I'm going to say. A just war... There is no such thing as a perfectly just war. The reasons for it may be just, but the people who are involved in the war, even on the just side of the just, are sinners, and they will do things that are unrighteous and unjust. But that does not mean that the cause of the war is unjust. 
In the same way, there is no completely just or righteous nation this side of the millennial kingdom. And we cannot make there be a perfect just nation. Because nations are made up of sinners and corrupt people. But remember, if you don't have a Judeo-Christian worldview, if you're operating on naturalism, if you're operating on uh, any form of Darwinism as your ultimate authority, as your ultimate uh, understanding, ultimate origin, where there's nothing but matter, eternal matter, eternal energy, then you have no basis for defining something as good or bad. Not in any kind of absolute sense. That's why you eventually reach that in postmodernism. Is because if you say that something is wrong, it is simply wrong because that's what society has come up with. That's what the majority of people have come up with. And you may go to the next country or the next continent, and people have come up with a different idea. And they may say that, that what you say is wrong over there is perfectly fine and just here because there's no absolute to appeal to. And in Darwinism, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate causative factor in Darwinism is not the providence of God, because in Darwinism there is no God. But the ultimate causative factor in Darwinism is struggle and fight and survival. What is the catchphrase, the slogan of Darwinism? Survival of the fittest which sounds great to most people, but it doesn't explain one important thing that it's allegedly supposed to explain. It doesn't explain the arrival of the fittest. How did they get there to begin with? But survival of the fittest means competition, means fighting for certain things, and the stronger one, the one that can win, is the one that has the right to go on and to propagate the species so that you can continue uh, evolution according to, to Darwin. The basic, the basic problem with that is it's saying that there, there's no real right or wrong. It's just power. And this is actually what worked itself out in what became known as social Darwinism, which was at the very heart of the ideology of Adolf Hitler and, and the Nazis. It, became a, it was a major player in the thinking of Europe in the 19th century and early 20th century. Now, after World War II, and especially the Holocaust, people have come along and said, no, 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 social Darwinism is an illegitimate conclusion from Darwinism. On what basis? On what basis can you say that? Well, see, it ended up in something bad. Well, where do you get the idea of bad? You have no right to the idea of bad. Bad and good, righteous and unrighteous, are Bible terms. They're God's terms. You, you, can't, you can't use them. You don't have a right to it. Because in your system, what happens just happens. It's natural. And, and survival of the fittest is, is, is the mechanism to go forward. So we have to recognize that, that uh, and in their view, there's no such thing as sin, and their view is everybody's perfectible. But we believe that there's, just as there's no, no perfect person, and no perfectible person, apart from the grace of God in eternity, there is no completely just nation. It's never going to be perfect. And in all of these other systems of thinking, Marxism, naturalism, all of these other systems, they all end up uh, thinking that you can, man can bring in some sort of worker's paradise, some, some utopic state. 
So just as there are just nations and unjust nations, just nations will have examples of injustice within them. Unjust nations will have examples of justice at times within them, but they're characterized mostly by injustice. So uh, just because there are examples of injustice in a nation does not mean the nation is not just. In the same way, there is no completely just law code developed by human beings because all law codes developed by human beings will have inequities. But a just code will have a framework within it for self-correction, for correcting uh, the laws within it that need to be rewritten, that need to be corrected, that need to be removed. And this is true of our Constitution. It was not perfect. The people who wrote it knew it wasn't perfect, but it was better than anything else that was out there. It was not inerrant. It did not come down from God. But it included the means to modify and correct injustices, including slavery. At the time that the Constitution was written, though, slavery was an accepted norm throughout the world. I'm not trying to justify it, but that was an accepted norm. We have to always interpret people and history within the time in which they were written. We can't go back and look at, look at somebody like John Calvin and say, well, you silly boy, you weren't a premillennialist. Well, that really hadn't developed yet. His battle was on justification by faith, not eschatology. So you can't judge people in, in a historical time on the basis of later, later uh, developments. And at the time the Constitution was written, which was 1789, you just had the beginnings of a movement of an anti-slavery, anti-slave trade movement in England by evangelicals such as John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, and Granville Sharp, who was a brilliant Greek scholar. So that was just beginning, but it wasn't until about 1815 or 1816 that you have the law passed in the British Empire that abolished the slave trade. But other countries were still practicing that, and it was practiced by the Arabs in Africa, and it was practiced uh, uh, across the world. It had been the norm across the world for four or 5,000 years of history. So we have to understand that they were really transforming the world, and, and it came out of white people, white evangelical Christians, who were the ones who pushed it to abolish, abolish the slave trade. And so eventually, within the framework of the American Constitution, there were a number of states that abolished slavery, there were states in like Connecticut and Massachusetts and other states in the north, so that by the mid-1820s, all of the states north of the Mason-Dixon line had ended slavery in those states, but not in the south. And that eventuated in uh, the horrors of the war between the states, but I'm getting into other things. My point is that we have to understand that human beings are sinners there's no perfect system of justice. There's no perfect system of government. There's no perfect legislation. And we always strive, though, for perfection, hoping we will hit excellence. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the impact of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate on the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution of 1680. Now, I'm not going to say much about this, but it's important 
They, they, what happened there was based on their understanding and application of the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. In both of these, the issue for was calling the nation and the national leadership back to the principle of the rule of law. And for them, that was English common law going back to the Magna Carta at Runnymede in the 13th century when the barons of England forced King John to submit to them, signing the Magna Carta, it established the fact that the king of England served at the pleasure of the lords, the barons of England, so that he is not an authority unto himself. He is not an absolute authority. And in fact, this led to the development of the thought in English common law that the king was under the law. Now, there were battles and there were fights and it wasn't a smooth path, but by the time you get into the 1600s, in around 1630, 1640, there's a Puritan writer by the name of Samuel Rutherford who writes a book. The Italian, I mean, the Latin title is Lex Rex, The Law is King, not The King is Law. This was the idea of the divine right monarchy of the Stuarts, James the uh, first, Charles the first, and uh, James the second, and Charles the second. But this is why you have this English Civil War, is to establish the rule of law, that the king is not a law unto himself, and that he should rule uh, in coordination with the parliament. This is when parliament is beginning to develop during the really during the 1600s. But this set the standard in the 1600s of the English tradition of the rule of law, and that is what eventually made uh, England uh, great. But it came, it derived, it was based on the influence of Judeo-Christianity. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about prestige. It wasn't about birthright and aristocracy. It's about the rule of law. And we as Americans are in that tradition, and we believe in the rule of law. And what we are witnessing today is a, an attempt to overthrow the rule of law, chaos, the destruction of property, the destruction to, in some degree of life. That hasn't happened in recent things that we've seen, but it's happened in some of these anarchist attacks uh, back in the 60s and back in the, the 70s. Now, I want to say a few things about the relation of the Magdeburg, Magdeburg Confession to what happened in the American War for Independence. There is an article that I have read, and I have done enough study on it to where I, I'm grateful for it because it pulls together a lot of different uh, ideas and quotes in history and is very well done. It's written by Eric Patterson, who's the dean of the Senator A. Willis Robertson School of Government at Regent University, and a research fellow at the Berkeley Center of Religion, uh, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University, and he's the author and editor of 11 books. And Nathan Gill, who, who at the time, this was published in 2014, uh, was a candidate for a Ph.D. in politics at Hillsdale College and a graduate of Regent University. It is entitled The Declaration of the United Colonies, America's First Just War Statement. And this Declaration of the United Colonies is not referring to the Declaration of Independence, but a declaration that was made a year earlier 
that lays out the real basis for why there was tension and why there was war, because by the time it was written in uh, July 6th of, of 1775, it was three months after the outbreak of hostilities at, uh, at Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, and all the battles around, uh, that took place around, uh, around Boston. They have made a very compelling argument, which I'm going to try to summarize very briefly. Um, <clears throat> the argument that they make is that the king was, un- was to be under the law according to English common law. But George III and Lord North were acting as if the king were a law unto himself. It was that same problem they faced back with the Stuarts in the 17th century. From 1765 until uh, 1775, there were unceasing attempts and petitions and people going to Parliament to solve the tensions between the colonies and the government. And so as a result of that, finally it reached a point where it became clear that this just wasn't going to work. And I'm just going to run you through a little bit of history here. Uh, Britain's colonies in America had a high degree of autonomy from the very beginning. The colonists uh, were, the, most of the colonies were founded at the expense of private individuals who were risking their capital in order to establish these outposts and trading posts in the Western Hemisphere. They were not founded by the British government. The colonists obtained charters from the crown that, quote, forever granted Americans the same, quote, liberties and immunities as if they had been born within this, our realm of England, unquote. That is from the first charter of Virginia in 1606. Uh, Perhaps the most important English right was freedom from taxes to be levied without consent. The colonists understood that these assemblies... uh, their assemblies were to operate independently of the British government within the colony. So all of the colony's business within the colony, taxation, everything else, was to be controlled by the local uh, colony government. Anything that involved trade outside of the colony, well, that came under uh, the control of the king and was at the interest of the empire. Disputes began to arise over these arrangements by the latter part of the 17th century. But several times, Parliament agreed and was obliged by law to recognize the legitimacy of the colonial's claim. Again and again, they backed off, recognized the legal language in the Charter. But after the Glorious Revolution of 1680, Parliament assumed more power, more authority, and assumed that they were acting as the voice of the king. And so that the old consensus that the colonies were sovereign within their internal borders and that uh, England really only had control over things that were going to happen outside of the borders began to break down. But they were not legally evaluating or examining uh, the laws and the legal consequences of their actions. Uh, So that by the time you get to the 1760s, one writer states, uh, the Constitution 
became precisely what Parliament said it was. You see, they're beginning to act as a dictator. They are interpreting it's not going through a judicial system. Parliament is just arbitrarily making the law mean whatever uh, they wanted it to mean. Uh, William Pym, who was a member of Parliament, argued that by virtue of this authority, quote, the British Parliament can at any time set aside all the charters that have ever been granted, unquote, if those charters cease to serve the general good. Although British officials such as Lord Camden, William Pitt, and Edmund Burke uh, argued vociferously against those claims. But after what we call the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, uh, Britain wanted more money to pay the cost, and they began to uh, house more soldiers here in the colonies. Uh, That was not supposed to be part of the deal. There weren't any wars going on at that time, so that also caused uh, various problems along with an increase in taxes. And at the time, Adam Smith, the author of Wealth of Nations, the foundational book for free market economic theory, uh, said that um, these taxes sacrificed colonial commerce to British mercantile interests. So the basic question that developed here was had to do with this role of authority. Now, remember, 75% of the colonies come out of a Reformed tradition. A number of the others come out of a Lutheran tradition. Only 2% came out of a Roman Catholic tradition. So they all are influenced by the basic thinking of of the Magdeburg uh, Confession, arguing that resistance was justified only when it was uh, a violation of basic basic rights related to their God-given unalienable rights. And so since law is supposed to be king, the colonists began to appeal on the basis of law over the next years. In fact, there are, uh, they were ignored. They sent petition after petition, and they're ignored by Parliament. They're ignored by the king. Even a a petition from the merchants of London that supported the colonist cause was ignored by Parliament. Uh, These guys write that similar petitions from major English cities like Bristol, Glasgow, Norwich, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, uh, Wolverhampton, and others met an identical fate. I had no idea that so many, so many uh, cities in England were coming along supporting the colonial cause and saying, look, what you're doing is unfair to them. If you relax, they'll do better. They do better in commerce. We'll do better in commerce. Uh, These things need, need to change. So... Bottom line on this is that proposals for conciliation completely failed. Although influential voices called for concessions, the response from Lord North and King George III were uncompromising. They just ignored it. So the colonists are doing, they're pursuing every legal avenue possible. In April 1775, you had the outbreak of hostilities there in Massachusetts. And the Continental Congress meets, and in July of 1775, they author a couple of things, uh, one of which is called the Olive Branch Petition. This was a petition to give the king, to reach a, 
area of compromise with the king to avoid all hostilities at, at whatever cost. Um, the day after they voted on the Olive Branch petition, they put forth the Declaration of Causes and Necessities of Taking Up Arms. This is a rather lengthy document. I'm not going to go through it. But it is based on this whole Magdeburg uh, Constitution thing, uh, a doctrine. So uh, that's, that's absolutely important to understand that. So what happens here is when the king gets the Declaration of Causes and Necessities of Taking, taking Up Arms, then he does what? He responds to it? No, not at all. What happens is that he treated the Olive Branch petition with contempt and declared that the colonies were in rebellion. Okay, this is the problem because they're not in rebellion. They are doing everything they can to resolve the problem and he's been ignored and everything else and this goes on and we know what resulted in that was that our uh, coming to our country. Uh, in this paragraph states that the Declaration of Causes and Necessities of Taking Up Arms in July 1775, penned primarily by the conservative delegate John Dickinson, was a declaration of self-defense. It laid out a history of British oppression, once again made the colonists' long-established legal case that Parliament's jurisdiction over the colonies was external and not internal, as I've already gone through. So what do these things have in common? When we look at contrast these English wars, the Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, which was a peaceful revolution, uh, no shots were fired, and the American War for Independence. The French Revolution, I've heard this all my life, they're not like the, the, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, this stuff that's going on today, were not the same. What's the ultimate difference? The ultimate difference is that the English were arguing for the rule of law. Second, they were all believers in a Judeo-Christian worldview. They were, they were believers in God as the ultimate lawgiver. In contrast with the French Bolshevik Cultural Revolution and what's going on today on the streets is that uh, they are atheist. From Black Lives Matter to Antifa to the Chinese Cultural Revolution to the Bolshevik Revolution to the French Revolution, the leaders hated Christianity, the leaders hated biblical truth, and were revolting against biblical truth. Second, they all believed to one degree or another that man was improvable and they could bring in a more perfect government and a more perfect society. They attempted to create this utopia. This is the whole idea in Marxism, and Marxism is leading to, ultimately, to a worker's paradise. So they reject law, and they overturn a government, and they're rejecting everything that the prior government held and stood for, and they use chaos and disorder and violence to replace the government. And last of all, within all of these systems, whether you're talking about the French Revolution or you're talking about the Bolshevik Revolution or you're talking about uh, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and all of these different groups, the weathermen of the 60s, any of them, they have no basis 
for talking about justice or righteousness. They have no basis philosophical. They have no basis for ethics. They have no basis for right and wrong. Today we're seeing a comp- uh, group that is comprised of a toxic brew of the following elements. Some of these you need to look up and learn. Some of these I don't know that much about yet. I've been reading a lot about all of them. Cultural Marxism, which is different from economic Marxism, but is at the heart of all of these movements. Identity politics, which says it doesn't matter what the individual does, says, or believes. What matters is what group he's in. It's a complete rejection of the first divine institution. They believe in social justice, which is based on identity politics, that justice is for the group, not related to the individual. Uh, Critical race theory, which also ties in with social justice and identity politics. Intersectionality, which has to do with all of these different disenfranchised groups, whether you're talking about an ethnic minority or a uh, 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 women, or even though women are in the majority of the population, they're considered a minority. Uh, you have um, LGBTQ. All of them are when when one or two or more of these are working together. That's what intersectionality uh, relates to. They're based on an extension of postmodernism, which has no ultimate view of right or wrong. Ecumenicalism in the church, let's all get together, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. There's no difference between them and what's going on in a couple of significant denominations, the Presbyterian Church of America and the Southern Baptist Convention. They're all being invaded by social justice warriors, and it's all built on the concept of white privilege. Now, just quickly, because we're here, I want to get out of this and I wanted to show you a couple of things because we ought not get away from this uh, tonight. Okay, this is Patrice Cullors, and she is... I'm going to turn the sound on, Eddie, so be prepared. She is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. Listen to what she says. myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, We uh, are trained Marxists. Um, We are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. And I think that what we really try to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. Okay, so what she is saying is that they're trained Marxists, they have an ideology, and that's what they're trying to impose on on, uh, on, on, on the country. Okay, we didn't want to go to that one. Okay, this is a recent event that just occurred. It's a Black Lives Matter demonstration in London just in the last couple of weeks where this individual who's a member of the LGBTQ community is basically saying there's one common enemy, the white man. ...about education and you can't talk about black issues and LGBT issues and exclude them as if there's some individual issue. You need to be looking at this using intersectionality, which is a a word that, you know, is, is thrown around, but what does it really mean? It means recognizing that there is one common enemy, the white man. 
and, uh, and the systems that they use are capitalism, patriarchy, and fascism. They were created and perpetuated by white men for white men in the interest of white men. And once we... Okay, I'm going to stop it there. What we're seeing here is a full-bore assault, as we saw last Thursday night when I showed the poster that was up on the Smithsonian. It's not about the white man. This is not an attack on the white man. It is an attack on every single divine institution. When you had the English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, and the American War for Independence, it was a desire to restore the rule of law and to be more consistent in the observance of the divine institutions. Even in the English Civil War, this is back in the 1630s, 1640s, which is the time that is given birth to what is called the British Restorationist Movement as they were coming to premillennial convictions and recognizing that God had a plan and purpose to restore the Jewish people to their historic homeland. They are philo-Semitic. They are not anti-Semitic. They love, so all of the divine institutions are coming into play. But when you get to these other groups, they reject all of them. Black Lives Matter is falling all over itself to build their coalitions with the Palestinian Authority, and they are anti-Israel. And one more thing I want to look at uh, as we wrap up is I have a statement here, if I can find it. No, that's not it. Boom. Here, uh, yeah, this is it. This is this is the BlackLivesMatter.com. This is the section of what we believe. This is their doctrinal statement. And when you get down into their doctrinal statement, not only are they Marxist, that's the underlying philosophy, not only do they have uh, uh, major players within the movement in the upper echelons of leadership who uh, began when... Uh, blowing things up with the weather underground and being in prison for a couple of decades back in the 70s and 80s uh, involved in this, but they they make certain s- statements. They say, we make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. They are very open to all the LGBTQ stuff, which violates both the divine institution, one, uh, two of marriage, three of family. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle. Okay, so they want to undo and tear apart cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. They want to do away with his, his biblical marriage and traditional marriage, and, and to uplift black trans folk, especially black, black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Uh, next, he said, we, uh, we make our spaces family-friendly and enable... Uh, oh, next one. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. Next paragraph, we foster a queer-affirming net network. Bottom line is they uh, state, they, uh, what they are stating is hostile to the divine institution, number one, because they practice identity politics. So it's all about the identity. It's all about white people, uh, white men. So that's number one. Number two, they're against marriage. Number three, they're against family. 
Number four, they're against government and the representatives of government because they want to take, get rid of all of the police. So all of this flows from their basic view that man is good and you don't need, uh, you don't need that. So that sets it up. That tells us that what is going on today is significantly different from anything that has gone before in American history. They want to destroy America. I have another video, maybe I'll show it next week, of one of the speakers in this uh, riot going on in Portland who said, we, want to, we demand that America be dismantled and we want to end the United States and get rid of the Constitution. So this is what they want. The enemy is not white men. The enemy is Judeo-Christianity. The enemy is the Bible because it is the Bible that transformed Western civilization because before the, the New Testament, before the Apostle Paul took the gospel to Europe, they were just as pagan and just as immoral and out of it as any African, any Asian, any Aborigine, anywhere. They were as barbaric. What transformed Western Europe was the Bible. What they want to do is take the Bible out of everything. So essentially, this organization is anti-God. Remember, the rejection of God's principles is the rejection of God and the rejection of his plan. And if this country rejects, then we're in trouble. And there's a plan of action here. We have the most important election in our lifetimes coming up. I just uh, participated in the Texas State Republican Convention. We have to be work within, find people, get organized, work for candidates, uh, pound the pavement, do work the phones, whatever is necessary, because we have to get Christians out. We have to get people out in voting, because voting is our right, it's our privilege, and voting is our franchise, and we need to exercise it, or we may never really have an honest vote or election again. Father, thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at these things tonight and to understand how your word impacts history and has impacted our country. Father, we pray that you would help us to be discerning as we take the Bible and apply it to current events and things that are going on, that we may see the truth and not be deceived by the father of lies. And Father, we pray for the many multitudes of Christians that have been deceived, that somehow their eyes would be open to what is going on. But, but we have little hope if you do not change them because there's such an attraction, such an ignorance, uh, such a failure to learn and to know that it, it, it befuddles us. But, Father, we pray that you would turn things around and we put this country and our future and its future in your hands. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.